Hello everyone, it's August 1st, 2023, and we have a new NASA list. It's the tipping point one, the one where NASA gives out money to organizations aspiring to do cool stuff with the hope that they succeed. They're really focusing on the moon, it's the next big destination, so let's take a look at what we can expect and lift off. And we've cleared the tower. Welcome to episode 420 of the Overall Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And I'm Dennis. All right, so I guess go ahead and get him out of the way. <laughs> yeah, sweet number. Woo! <laughs> I should have prepared some good puns for this. Don't let your lack of preparation blunt your enthusiasm for the rest yeah, of the Oh, go. God. There you go. Thanks. <laughs> that was a... Uh... <laughs> I was going to say we would come up with some half-baked puns, but um, I, didn't, I didn't even want to do that. <laughs> good movie. Step one is to not have any shame. That is a good movie. I actually watched it the last couple of years. And oh, really? Yeah, okay. it, it still was pretty funny. I guess in space news, um, one thing we can talk about is uh, DARPA selecting Lockheed Martin to develop a nuclear propulsion system. So exactly what do you know about that, Dennis? Because I think you're the one who brought this to our attention first. Um, I don't know too much about it really <laughs> i just had seen that it was appearing in multiple uh, sources as well as having some buzz in social media but yeah i mean there's always i feel like right there's always some kind of level of uh, nuclear propulsion uh, development that's sort of simmering in the background and this is just kind mm -hmm. of uh, i think a uh, another uh, step in the direction of trying to bring it to something that can actually be built and uh, flown. And so, uh, yeah, it's a NASA and DARPA uh, and Lockheed Martin kind of joint venture. So Draco, yeah, the, as the name of the, uh, the concept, I guess. I mean, I guess, yeah, so it's NTP, so nuclear thermal propulsion. So your nuclear material just warms up your propellant and, and then you shoot it out the back. And that's basically the approach. But they're talking about ISPs uh, trying to get into the uh, 700 seconds or even up to 900 seconds when they have it uh, kind of fully figured out. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it, you know, it's, it's, I hate the number of examples in, uh, you know, certainly in an American uh, space flight where there's like some uh, progress made in a direction and then it suddenly fully stops and then it takes decades later to try to recapture that initial progress. And so, right, we had NERVA back in the, what, the 60s or 70s, maybe, which was, you know, NASA's first real attempt at uh, nuclear uh, propulsion. And they actually built some test engines, I think. But uh, unfortunately, uh, but yeah, I mean, hopefully this is, you know, the latest steps of us catching back up to that, where we could have been. Because imagine if we just kept really pushing forward with nuclear propulsion full steam this whole time, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we've, we've, yeah. Had, uh, we've had a space program for a while now. <laughs> yeah. It, it could be a very different looking NASA if they had, you know, kept pursuing that. So mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, it'll be cool to see what happens. Yeah. But as but as I as I understand this, uh, they, they actually want to actually fly a thermal propulsion system. So actually like fly the Draco spacecraft, like, which is maybe why there's more buzz and excitement about this because... Yeah, it, it, they say it has to be designed to fit within uh, kind of standard modern uh, payload fairings and that they even have like a, they talk about the, the mission would only be a few months where, of course, the, the real appeal of uh, nuclear propulsion is that you can fire longer and, and achieve greater, you know, uh, delta V just over time. Uh, not quite as having to wait as long as uh, electric, but nothing like chemical. So, but... Yeah. So that would be, I mean, that I guess would be something worth pointing out <laughs> that if we can mm -hmm. actually uh, perform it because, right, we, we've never fired, uh, unless you guys could correct me if I'm wrong, I don't think we've ever fired a nuclear 
propulsion system on orbit, um, we've had nukes on orbit, or at least nuclear material on orbit, and not just in RTGs, right? There was the one where the Russians wound up having something that deorbited over Canada, right? Oh, yeah. So yeah. I think well, that was Project just, uh, Starshot, too, right? Or Project Starfish. Starfish. Oh, is that the testing the nuke in space? Starfish I Prime? Think so. Yeah, mm-hmm. Starfish Prime. The largest nuclear test uh, performed in outer space. So, okay, so in the news, NASA List Fest Part 2, right? So last week, we did a list, um, a NASA list of seven selected companies that NASA was going to partner with to help them develop uh, certain technologies, but there was no money involved. That was something that Ben pointed out. So this Part 2 list, uh, this is all about money. So everybody gets something, uh, gets a, <laughs> I guess everyone gets a cut. So this is the tipping point selection, which I think we've, you know, done these lists before. Uh, in fact, I know we have. Uh-huh. Yeah, so this is the 2023 one. So we have we have 11 different organizations that were selected. Uh, specifically, this is to support long-term exploration of the moon, and the total is $150 million. So quite a, quite a range of how big your uh, award was, depending on what specific thing you're trying to do. This, the smallest one was $1.9 million for Varda, and the biggest one was uh, $34.7 million for Blue. Yeah, so if, if, you're, if you're wondering what a a tipping point is um, it's it's pretty cool what uh, they they talk about in the announcement um, what defines this particular type of uh, award right because NASA's splashing out money all the time I mean you could splash out more but <laughs> you know there's all sorts of different uh, uh, contracts and projects and grants and things that you can always apply for and try to win and so uh, for the tipping point ones they basically want you to take uh, uh, TRL for technology. And then be able to do a ground or flight demo to boost it to TRL-6 or higher. And uh, in parallel to that, also be able to commercialize and bring this thing to market. And so make it actually happen. And so that's kind of the defining features. Now, to put it in uh, plain English, NASA, which uses uh, – I know there's a couple – types of uh, TRL systems, right? To, uh, technology readiness level. Um, NASA uses a nine level one. And basically TRL4 is that you have components and or uh, breadboard validation in the laboratory environment. And so uh, do you have even that much, right? It's a kind of lab piece of equipment at this point that physically exists. Uh, That's TRL-4. And the idea for these tipping point grants is that if you've got some technology that's at that point and you want to bring it to TRL-6, which is that you actually have a prototype that you can demonstrate um, in the relevant environment, whether it's on the ground for like maybe some energy generation thing or in space if it's, you know, part of a you know, spacecraft uh, system. And so that's the idea is to basically bring them over that, I guess, TRL-5 <laughs> uh, uh, hurdle where you end up actually having uh, prototypes. And so that's that's the goal. That's a really good summary because like that mm-hmm. actually helps you understand what tipping point we're talking about. So like I said, there have been uh, 11 selections. The first one we have on the list, I guess these are all just going in alphabetical order now that I look at it. Uh, the first one is Astrobotic and they got $34.6 million. And this is to develop Luna Grid Light which is a form of power transmission on the moon. This is pretty cool. I did not know that Astrobotic was even developing this. So this is um, this is going to be done with a lander and a 6U CubeSat rover, which will deploy from the lander, and it will reel out a one-kilometer length of cable. Um, and then I believe the lander will generate power 
via solar panels, I think, and that's just like given what it looks like. I've seen some images. Uh, and yeah. then it will transmit that to the rover, and it will be the first high-voltage transmission on the moon, and it will be one kilowatt of power. So that's that's pretty cool. Mm. This is what they call a pilot for a service that they're planning on offering to customers on the moon. So basically, once there's people on the moon or something on the moon uh, that requires power, they're going to provide this service. Yeah, this is the one where you see all those like vertical solar panels that are like tethered and uh, between them. Uh, because um, you know Artemis is focusing, uh, you know, near the South Pole, that means there's going to be a lot of perpetually shade or permanently sh shaded regions and you know hills that you'll never be able to put you know a, a horizontal solar panel on the ground and get anything useful. And in any event, being at such a high latitude, uh, the sun's always going to be kind of lowish on the horizon. And so as a result, these are like vertical ones that will be able to, I guess, peek out <laughs> over any hills or anything like that and try to yeah. uh, catch power that way and then have these cables uh, running along that, I guess – uh, little rovers go and place the cables uh, autonomously. Right. Yeah. So the solar panels in the version that you're talking about, that's probably more like the final product. But yes. uh, I yeah, believe I that so. the demonstrator just has, yeah, the actual lander and then that's what's going to provide the power. So yeah, mm. pretty much exactly like that. Um, pretty cool idea. Yeah. Next on the list is the Big Metal Additive Company, I guess. I don't know. This is the name of the company. This is what I've never heard of. I guess just call it BMA and that sounds better than just calling it Big, Big Metal Additive, <laughs> which, which sounds like a thing, not like the name of a company. It sounds like the name of a rock band. Yeah, mm. I suppose so. But they had received $5.1 million. They're focusing on NASA standards for component manufacturing and acceptance testing. So basically NASA is giving them money to do what they do and I guess make it something that would be within the requirements of NASA. So they specifically use additive manufacturing and subtractive machining together. And it seems like that what that means is that they literally build components that have both. I don't think I don't think that's weird. I think I think most parts that well, are 3D printed are then machined to get high right. precision services where they need them. And that's kind of what I was thinking too. Like I, I, I didn't think this was that revolutionary, but I guess that is what they do. And so they do want to point that out. There might be other things that are perhaps more noteworthy. I'm not sure what they are. Um, they have some pretty cool looking components, some things that they've built through additive manufacturing and so forth. And some of it looks very kind of like an AI generated thing, you know, has a very hmm. organic look to it. Some of the bullet points they have here, uh, topology optimization, process simulation, design and producibility analysis, complete prototype design and assembly. Yeah, so all that kind of stuff. Um, and then the next one, Blue Origin, we've all heard of them. Um, <laughs> this was, uh, as I think Dennis, you pointed out, the only company that appeared in last week's list as well. So they have, uh, they're working with NASA a lot, it seems lately. And this one yeah. is for a blue alchemist. So I guess everything has to begin with the word blue. Um, <laughs> so this is an end-to-end -end scalable autonomous system to produce solar cells from lunar regolith. And this is something that I did not know about. This is crazy. So this uses molten regolith electrolysis. And I don't know what that is. I mean, I can guess given what it's called. But so basically, you can use electrolysis, right, on molten regolith. And from that, you can somehow make solar cells. Is that a thing? I mean, I guess that's how you take a, uh, a powdery talcum. Uh, talc powder like surface uh, material and basically form it into a solid plasticky kind of <laughs> material that is the 
you know, foundation for your solar cells, I guess. It also says that this is capable of producing power transmission cables anywhere on the lunar surface. So they kind of want to do maybe the same thing as astrobotic. That seems a little bit more believable. Like maybe you can make cables somehow out of regolith. I don't know. But it, it did seem like that that's what they were saying. Because after all, you have lunar regolith everywhere. And so mm. you could just make cables on site from the regolith itself. But again, I guess I don't know enough about regolith to know how that's yeah. possible. So so all, what this really is, so like if you think about electrolysis uh, on Earth, we usually use it to separate hydrogen and oxygen from each other, right? So mm -hmm. you take wa water and you drop a 9-volt battery and you get bubbles on either terminal of the battery. In this case, they are taking regolith and heating it up really, really hot. Um, and then they're flowing an electrical current through it. And I don't know if this is proper. Like, I, I believe that what they're doing is sorting the components uh, or, you know, boiling them off in a particular order. So it's I think it's more akin to like liquid column chromatography rather than the chemical reaction that happens with electrolysis. But all they're doing is using this fancy technology to separate out different helpful components from lunar regolith. So they're able to pull out oxygen, iron, and silicon, and aluminum. And that that's all this is. So they're not uh, they don't have a machine that will uh, take dirt in at one side and spit out solar panels and wire at the other. Mm -hmm. um, this is not what's that? What's that factory? A factorio, right? This isn't this oh, is a factorio <laughs> on the moon. Um, but what they can do is produce the raw materials that you then need to you know build some of these other components having mm -hmm. access to high quality silicon wafers which is not what we're talking about here we're talking about like silicon the raw material but if you can you know it's already presumably molten at this point right if you can then build yourself some silicon wafers yeah you are 90 percent of the way to making um the solar panel the pv cell that we're familiar with like mm -hmm. that that's yeah. one of the hardest parts of doing that the rest of it is not easy <laughs> but like th this is like the first step to the next step so the final step of making solar panels. I mean, it's, it's pretty cool. It's, it's just not a, it's not a complete like, Hey, here's your solar panel. But like, even to do what you're describing seems like you said, not easy, very hard. Um, it sounds a little bit, it still sounds, well, I've never heard of what a factorio is, but it sounds like that to me oh. still. <laughs> I'm guessing it's, <laughs> it's something, a, it's but a just, game. you know, like, no, okay. it's a game. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, it's, it, it still sounds like that. Like it, it sounds a little bit too easy to be true, I guess, in this case. I, I don't think it's easy at all, right? Because they're, they're heating the regolith up to 1600 degrees Celsius is what their website says. And then while it's that hot, they're separating out the different components that they want to isolate. Like, Right. So I guess I should have said it sounds too good to be true. Right. Yeah. But I, I guess I'm not saying it right, but yeah, it sounds very hard and too good to be true. I guess is what I'm it trying to say. It definitely sounds like TRL four, right? Yeah. Like, yeah, sure. I can, I can see them doing that in the lab. I cannot see them doing that on the moon yet. Right. Mm -hmm. yeah. That's a good way to put it. Yeah, exactly. And, and it's, I think worth pointing out too, like you're saying about, you know, TR level four, that, uh, it was earlier this year, uh, blue alchemist was in the news where they, uh, using a lunar regolith simul simulant, 
uh, a simulated <laughs> lunar regolith that they were actually able to make uh, these kind of, you know, basic parts of uh, solar cells and transmission wire, which is pretty wild. Yeah, there, there's a link in the show notes and it's got some really nice GIFs and photos. Um, but like, it's worth pointing out that this technology is what gave them the silicon that they started with. They then took that silicon and did the crystal, like the crystallization and the waferization, cutting the wafers and all that. And then they put uh, solar panels on it. Honestly, they probably shipped it to a company that then put the the PV cell on top of it. And so like mm. they've got this beautiful photo of a really great looking solar panel or solar cell, it's like round. It's got like the blue origin feather at the top. It's very pretty, mm. but it's a solar panel that was made using the silicon that they separated out from this regolith simulant. Not the process ends at the separation. They right, then did right. this extra work to make a very pretty demo, um, which I think is a, a great marketing idea. So to, to, to really just kind of emphasize then, I guess th this is all about a very important cre uh, uh, process of creating the raw material. Yeah. Kind of full stop. <laughs> Where yeah. They're not going to yeah. be fabricating these things on the moon at this point or as part of this tipping point award. Mm -hmm. It's create the raw materials from lunar regolith, which is a huge I think first that's step. really important, right? Because like that's actually doable. That actually makes sense for this sort of an award. If they were saying we put rocks in at one end and we get fully functional solar panels out the other, I'd be like, no, they they shouldn't be getting the money because that's ridiculous. Mm. This is one step. And I think it's really good to have this step uh, at this time being completed. But even that one step to me, I mean, you said it's doable. It still sounds very hard, but Hey, that's what, you know, this is all about. So mm. yeah, I'm not going to complain really. Um, <laughs> uh, next on the list is freedom photonics and they're getting $1.6 million. And uh, this one, I don't, uh, this, I couldn't find much on this one, but uh, this one apparently, and plus there was what looks like a misprint in every new source that used the exact same paragraph. This uses a direct diode laser for more efficient LIDAR systems. And the words that I kept seeing was a direct diode laser sour, I think, which is not a thing. <laughs> so if you search this, you'll see it too. Um, somebody just copied that on every Space News article. Mm -hmm. But I'm assuming that, that there's no sours involved. Can I just say, I would That's love funny. a laser sour. Like that sounds like my kind of cocktail. A drink you can get, yeah. Yeah, yeah. something you can get at 10 forward or something, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So anyway, um, this could improve detection of methane in the atmosphere for a better understanding of climate change. So this doesn't seem to have as much to do with the moon in this case, actually. So maybe this is like, this is kind of an odd one. Yeah, I guess the LIDAR, right? Just go to recent news, Hakuto R, uh, you know, crashing. Um, so uh, landing on the moon is challenging and uh, there's going to have to be a lot of companies that are doing it in order for Artemis to really pan out the way that they wanted to. Mm. And so uh, I guess... I guess it's just that uh, that that climate change thing. Uh, Masses kind of had to put that in there, <laughs> maybe. Yeah, <laughs> you know, I uh, nice uh, positive side effect, I guess. Mm -hmm. Although some people, I'm sure, could argue that understanding climate change is probably more important than putting humans on the mm -hmm. moon. But <laughs> you, well, you can kill two birds with one stone it, in this case, I think. Exactly. So. Exactly. So yeah, that's Freedom Photonics. The next one is Lockheed Martin. We've all heard of them. Uh, and this is uh, something that they call joining demonstrations in space. That's as far as I can tell the name of this particular program that they want to develop. And uh, this is to develop in-space component joining technologies and inspection technologies for structural, electrical, and fluid systems. So the actual physical 
the joining of components right. in space. It kind of you know says what it is. Um, that's pretty cool. Yes. So so do you think is this is is part of this kind of you know this company would create X on the moon and this company would create Y and this company would create Z and that's all well and good. But at the end of the day, if you want to turn it into a larger system that's a moon base, you're going to really need to like even just something like you know connecting these all these different components together and inspecting that they're, you know, these wires are transmitting correctly and that these pipes are piping correctly um, is worth $9 million to try to <laughs> develop that. Does that, does that sound like that's part of it? I think kind of, yeah. I mean, because that's like a very basic thing that you have to be able to do, right? And uh, who else is developing that ability? Um, mm. I suppose the most experience is with putting together the ISS, right? Would that be the most analogous thing that you can think of that's been done in space? Right, right. The assembly of I a mean, giant space station? Functionally, yeah, which is really interesting because, yeah, there, there really wasn't any welding in, intentionally performed for ISS construction. It's all mechanical links. So that is that is a really interesting point. It's like mm. the closest we got is latches. <laughs> And I guess for the back half of these 11, I can turn it over to you, Dennis. <laughs> oh, copy that. Oh, real quick. Um, I figured out what Laser Sours is. Okay. Mm. Laser Source is the typo. Oh, there you go. That's the typo. Source. Makes total sense. <laughs> Thanks, man. And so I guess next up, we've got Redwire, who received just shy of $13 million for uh, their um, proposal. And you might recognize their name. Um, this is a company that has a whole bunch of subsidiaries that you probably know even more than them, uh, like Made in Space, which is the one that had the 3D printer on the ISS, and Deployable Space Systems, which we talked about semi-recently uh, when it comes to the uh, the rollout solar arrays. Um, they're the ones that you know are building uh, those. And so in any event, this uh, Tipping Point Award is to develop a greater compactor and microwave emitter that can remove rocks from, you know, I guess a big, you know, you scoop up something, <laughs> you uh, remove the rocks from it, you compact the regolith, and then you can melt or sinter it into a solid. And so this sounds like complementary slash parallel with some of what Blue Alchemist is is looking at, where theirs is more specific than this. This sounds like a, uh, a coarser way of being able to take I guess this is more like that uh, talking about uh, talcum powder and turning it into something solid that you can then turn to a road or a landing pad or something like that. And so uh, that's kind of, yeah, the first thing, I don't know, a lot of us, at least I think of when I think of create uh, ISRU and uh, really taking advantage of mm -hmm. that and making the whole uh, lunar ecosystem something that is uh, sustainable. Um, it'll involve a lot of this kind of stuff, uh, for sure. Yeah, and it seems that like you know, there's more than a couple companies that want to use Regolith, which makes sense because uh, it's everywhere. Oh. Um, <laughs> and I guess it's very, uh, well, I don't know, like because I just don't know enough about manipulating materials in, in this way. Like, how useful is Regolith? Like, like if you had to pick a powder that you could center, uh, yeah. exactly, how does that rank? <laughs> yeah. Well, the, unfortunately, it's pretty much the only powder you have on the moon, so it kind of, kind yeah. of is a moot point. <laughs> Um, but it, ma it makes me think of the interview that we did, uh, I think, in early 2020, after uh, IAC, talking to a scientist who was working on centering, uh, not regolith, but uh, volcanic soil or volcanic dirt in Hawaii. Um, mm. And she was doing it in an oven. Um, and I think that kind of got us thinking about this. And I believe we talked about a company that was uh, doing, looking into microwave centering 
So you could just like drive along. And like, I'm really glad to hear it come up again. Um, mm-hmm. Even if it's using lunar regolith, which may or may not be the absolute best thing to center. Although I can't imagine well, it's that bad because there's a lot of iron, right? And and it's it's I think that's really interesting that you say uh, volcanic uh, uh, rock being centered this way because the little bit of <laughs> geology that I know is that the Maria, which yeah. admittedly are not at the South Pole, but those are right. basalt, which is like you know the lavas that well the rocks that form from lavas in eruptions like uh, near Hawaii where it's not a big explosive you know volcanic eruption but just lava that's very uh, low viscosity just kind of pouring out of the ground. And, um, but I guess, yeah, I mean, it, I mean that was the kind point. of back. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But one way or another, I mean, it's, it's going to be some kind of, you know, hard rocky material, I guess. Cause if, if that means that it's more, uh, I believe the term, I'm going to throw, throw another, uh, uh, geology term. I think felsic would be the, uh, on the other end of the spectrum from, uh, basalts, which are mafic. And so anyway, it, it might not have, it doesn't have as much um, uh, iron perhaps, but you know, you could still make, I guess, uh, granite countertops on the, the moon using the <laughs> regolith, <laughs> I suppose, sure. something that strong. Mm-hmm. All right. And after that, we've got Proto Innovations that received uh, a $6.2 million award. And theirs was to uh, specifically advance modular flight-ready mobility control software for future lunar rovers and robots. Um, this software would be called is called the Mobility Coordinator. So I guess uh, keep in mind that name, and maybe who knows? We'll talk about it like we talk about terrain relative navigation five six years from now, you know. <laughs> and so uh, you know, it's, it's it's one of the smaller awards, but. You know, that obviously is important stuff. And, uh, you know, uh, in addition to just not only developing this uh, software, but to make it COTS in particular, commercial off the shelf. And so that's what uh, this company, Proto Innovations, uh, is being tasked with. Uh, Psionic is another one, is the next one. And they received a $3.2 million award. And in their case, this is going back to that LIDAR um, that you had mentioned earlier with the... uh, uh, freedom photonics uh mm-hmm. psionic in particular is going to validate its latest generation uh navigation doppler lidar uh and terrain contour matching system so in other words being able to land on the moon which again i, I think as as we see private company and newish spacefaring nation uh slam something into the moon at high velocity over and over and over again and then the idea of we having to send you know a dozen of these, you know, commercial spacecraft to be able to kit out this part of the, you know, our lunar base and kit out that part of the lunar base and keep building it up. We're going to have to really, I guess, get our success rate for landing on the moon. Yeah, that explains why, like, it seems that NASA is focusing on exactly that, like just landing the spacecraft, because it's something Mm. that doesn't happen successfully very often, it it seems, you know, like Mm. it actually is very hard. So Mm. yeah, that that should be a very big focus. And, you know, it's the most important first step. Like, yeah, it's contingent. All the all these other ones are contingent on you actually landing softly. (laughs) Can you land? Yeah. Uh, First step. Yep. And so this one, uh, uh, you know, being LIDAR, right? Basically, uh, light radar, light detection arranging. Um, and so it can work under no light conditions, which I suppose is also uh, important when you're going to, again, a place that has a lot of permanently shadowed craters. And uh, yeah, you, you might be in the, uh, the the lunar dark, the lunar evening at you know some point during your uh, final approach. And so, yeah, 
And and this one's also uh, done in partnership with uh, Draper Lab, which I thought was interesting because that's kind of a a big name uh, that you know I'm sure we're all familiar with. And then speaking of big names, ULA, which I don't know about you, but I, I don't I don't see ULA winning too many of these kind of contracts because ULA is like we've got our launch vehicles. <laughs> like I feel like uh, maybe that's just well. my ignorance. Oh, and they're flush. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but this uh, makes sense, though, because this is specifically – so this is $25 million to continue evolving their uh, HIAD, the Hypersonic Inflatable Aerodynamic Decelerator. And so this is, of course, the the inflatable heat shields with a whole bunch of uh, these tori, uh, these donuts that kind of concentrically go around. And, you know, when they're deflated, you can fit them within a typical, you know, payload shroud, but then uh, when it wants to – come back to earth or when it wants to you know plow through whatever atmosphere whatever world you're interested in uh, it can expand much greater than anything else and there was a cool video uh that nasa had like a little episode of something or other and they uh they were talking about how challenging it is to land on mars because of the thin atmosphere and that there are parts of you know the martian surface that you can't Forget landing Curiosity, right, which is about the same size as Perseverance and about one ton as big as anything we kind of had landed there. You couldn't apparently have landed Curiosity at the Martian sea level. Uh, you would have ran out of time trying to decelerate through the atmosphere. And so it had to be, you know, uh, they, they were uh, constrained to go to uh, elevations that were at least one kilometer, I think, uh, below sea level. Uh, or, you know, the equivalent of sea level on Mars. So, yeah. So, the but the idea, though, if you can make this gigantic uh, decelerator uh, or this gigantic heat shield, then you can land uh, much larger things. And so, I guess uh, this sounds like not very much a useful tech for landing things on the lunar surface. <laughs> yeah, Obviously. Uh, probably and, not. Yeah. You have to go a little bit lower than sea level on the moon as well. To slow down <laughs> the atmosphere. Yeah, yeah, and so um, yeah, I think and so. I think this will be uh, not only could this be useful for like Mars and like future things, but even in terms of supporting the Artemis program, uh, any kind of down mass you want to bring back to Earth, uh, this could be helpful. You can, I guess, uh, bring back more massive things uh, safely uh, plowing through the Earth's atmosphere, and so maybe that's where this gets kind of tied into the Artemis program. Or just conceptually that I guess if Artemis is just, you know, the first step on then moving on to Mars, then in a sense, this is also something that is, I guess, part of the uh, Artemis 2.0, maybe. I don't know. So do you remember how they define uh, sea level on Mars? Oh, yeah, Chris. So that's a good question. I'm going to guess that it's a uh, the mean topographic height and they just pick that as sea level because Mars has right, that ridiculous northern hemisphere is a flat ocean, such <laughs> a flat, you know, uh, low altitude. And then the Southern hemisphere is all highlands pretty much. Okay. I looked it up. Um, and I remember there being a lot more drama about like people wanting to go with different definitions. Um, mm. but there's only two that are listed on Wikipedia and they're pretty cool. Uh, the first choice was, um, based on atmospheric pressure. So they picked the the altitude, you know, the atmospheric altitude, uh, below which, uh, the triple point of water, the pressure at which water could exist at the triple point, given the icy, right icy. temperature, yeah, yeah. uh, no, not icy, the, the triple point of water, but boom, boom. No. Okay. <laughs> uh, sorry. Um, so like given the correct temperature, you could have the triple point of water exist at this 
at this pressure, they found where that was in the atmosphere and they said, okay, that's sea level. And it's like kind of cool. That's like a legitimate, like the, the physically motivated kind of, well, right. But also like, it's cool that Mars can support that as a sea level, that that's not below the surface or above the highest mountain. Um, so I really like that one, but then they actually changed it, um, after, uh, Mars orbiter got better altimeter data and they were able to calculate, um, the equipotential surface, um, which then became the new, um, sea level. And so that is the sphere where its average value at the equator is equal to the mean radius of the planet of the planet. So it's exactly what you said. It's basically, it's a little more complicated, but it's basically the average altitude. So their sea level is, is I'm assuming higher than ours, or actually it's probably pretty close to like, if you, think in terms of like, you know, median and standard deviation, it's probably pretty close to the way that ours works here because we have very deep canyons, uh, in the ocean and very tall mountains and they probably are pretty equal. I think if anything, the surface of the oceans is a little lower than our equipotential surface. Well, they certainly have higher highs though. Mars. Well, yeah. I mean, they're the all Tharsis in one place. Aren't they? And, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, Olympus Mons and I mean, it's it's just incredible. Like, if you try to compare Olympus Mons to Mauna Kea, even right or Everest. I mean, the the edge of Olympus Mons where it kind of drops off quickly, which is like one third of maybe its ultimate height, is still about the height of Everest. <laughs> so it's it's kind of ridiculous. And so, but like you're saying about it all being in one place, so Mars has the most interesting geology, in my opinion. So, okay. Yeah. And I guess Hyad, this, you know, is the more general name for uh, this type of uh, inflatable heat shield technology. But uh, they had done a number of these tests, including some suborbital ones uh, out of Wallops. But um, the most recent one you, you might remember last year was uh, Lofted, where they, uh, uh, one of these uh, heat shields flew as a secondary payload with a weather satellite and deorbited and splashed down in the ocean in one piece, protecting whatever was behind the shield. Oh, and before I forget, um, uh, talking about how to uh, how this might fit in the Artemis program, uh, Dank NASA means in the chat. Uh, thank you. Uh, it basically, is pointing out that this is a program that's managed by NASA Center that largely doesn't have anything to do with the Artemis program, and so I uh, don't think I need to try to shoehorn it into there that much. Um, <laughs> so that makes sense. Uh, in any event, giving ULA $25 million to develop this technology is just going to be uh, potentially good in a number of different you know, uh, situations uh, and different programs. And uh, our second to last uh, award, awardee is Varda Space Systems, who got $1.9 And that is to uh, mature their uh, cost-effective and mass-efficient thermal protection system, or TPS. And it's called uh, C-PICA or conformal phenolic impregnated carbon ablator. And so uh, TPS is, you know, part of you know, having a successful uh, space Return. program. <laughs> Return, thank you. <laughs> and so, yeah, so the idea is to literally take this uh, from, again, a TRL-4 uh, benchtop sort of uh, technology and actually flight test it and begin commercial production of the material. And then finally, uh, Zeno Power Systems was given $15 million uh, to develop a Sterling engine-enabled radioisotope power system uh, with americium-241. So uh, just basically to put it 
more simply, it's a radioisotope power system that doesn't use plutonium, which is very appealing when you consider how much plutonium we have uh, left and uh, how kind of rare that is. And so that kind of uh, rounds out the 11 companies. And uh, and Dank Nassimines also pointed out earlier, uh, I thought this was pretty good uh, context to give us that uh, tipping point contracts, right? This is the, the sixth round. And so uh, these, you know, there, there's history behind them. And uh, they tend to have basically a two-thirds uh, delivery rate. And so we shouldn't really be expecting that every one of these is going to uh, uh, work out. But, you know, two-thirds of 11 is, you know, what, six or seven of them, hopefully? Two-thirds so, is, is yeah. an incredible record for NASA. Yeah, yeah not good. bad. Not bad at all, yeah. <laughs> Two out of three ain't bad, right? Isn't that some album? <laughs> that's literally, yeah, the song or whatever. Uh, uh, song by Meatloaf, that's what it is. Yep, yep. Ah. Okay, so let's do three short and sweets this week. Ben, what's the first? Okay, Halo's added cost. The 935 million US dollar contract that NASA and Northrop Grumman signed two years ago has now increased in price by just under 4%, or 36 million US dollars. Northrop Grumman activated a cause in the fixed price contract that allows the price to account for, quote, broader economic issues, but more importantly, in my opinion, changing mission requirements. The only change that we're aware of right now is the move away from docking PPE and Halo together in lunar orbit. Instead, they will be bolted together on the ground before the launch. This simplifies rendezvous operations, but it adds additional demand to reduce mass. Next up, Sierra Space builds a better engine. Sierra Space received a $22.6 million contract from the US Air Force to mature the design of its VR35K-A Hydrolox engine for upper stage use. The engine is designed to produce 35,000 pounds of thrust and achieved high thrust efficiency during recent tests through the use of a fuel-rich stage combustion cycle. The VR35K also uses a thrust chamber assembly design called Vortex, allowing for higher chamber pressure in a smaller volume. And finally, contact with Voyager 2 lost, thought to be temporary. A command recently sent to Voyager 2 inadvertently caused the spacecraft's antenna to point slightly away from Earth, resulting in a loss of communication with the 46-year-old space probe. NASA has said that Voyager 2 is programmed to reset its orientation several times a year to ensure its antenna is pointed at Earth, so mission planners anticipate recovering contact on its next scheduled reset on October 15th. At a distance of 19.9 billion kilometers, or 12.4 billion miles, the spacecraft had left the solar system in 2018 and is now probing interstellar space. Moving on to this week in spaceflight history, we have five winners. Ryan R. got it correct, and then the Greeks, Sakhal, Asukar, and Chris S. got it correct with the bonus points as well. And the clue was dim sun. Not dim sum. Um, I guess we can reveal that. Uh, it's an N. Uh, and what is dim sum? Sounds delicious. Okay, this week in spaceflight history is the 5th of August, 2011. It was the launch of Juno. Um, Juno is a spacecraft that went to Jupiter uh, and is still there. Um, apparently, according to, uh, to Wikipedia, some sources say that it's actually a backronym uh, that stands for Jupiter Near Polar Orbiter, uh, J-U for Jupiter, N for near, and then O for orbiter. But uh, every media resource just talks about the reference to mythology and um, Jupiter, the god's wife, 
uh, Juno. Uh, and there's this like really kind of lovely flowery, um, explanation in a couple of uh, different NASA documents. You can find this like, uh, Jupiter wreathed himself in, in clouds and like hid himself from the world. And the only person who could see through his veil of clouds was Juno, his wife. And like, yeah, yeah it's really cute. Um, it, it, if you just ignore all the other horrible things that happened uh, to every single mythological character <laughs> of all time. Um, but right. Uh, so Juno is also known as new frontiers Two. This was the second uh, vehicle in the new frontiers uh, class of missions. Uh, so gigantic and expensive, right? And Juno set a bunch of firsts. I think the most important one is that it was the first outer solar system mission that was powered purely by solar panels. And that's where, uh, the, the clue came in dim sun. You, you really need, uh, a lot of solar panel in order to operate, uh, as far out as Jupiter, uh, just from the sun's very weak radiation at that point. So visually, uh, Juno is dominated by these three solar panels. The body of Juno is hexagonal, and then every other face has this giant solar panel sticking off of it. And, and they really are gigantic. Uh, they are 2.7 by 8.9 meters. That's 9.8 by 29 feet. Uh, absolutely gigantic. There's a really great video that NASA put out. I'll uh, gifify it and put in the show notes uh, that shows um, Juno relative to a basketball court uh, and a, a person standing on the court. And this thing really is absolutely massive. And these solar panels mm -hmm. take up so much area. And this is absolutely incredible to me. I can't believe that this number is correct or was correct. The solar panels produce uh, 486 watts, even when it's out at the orbit of Jupiter. Now I say was because solar panels degrade in efficiency when they are exposed to the high radiation environments that you find around Jupiter. And so that number is slowly dwindling, but I think the lowest it's expected to get by the end of its lifetime is like 460 or 470 watts. I mean, it's really a ton mm. of power. Uh, I mean, especially relatively speaking, right? Like it, th this is a luxurious amount of power if you compare it to some of the other uh, lower cost um, space missions, at least like deep space missions. So that's like the, the best first. Uh, but, you know, Juno also set a pretty good second. It is the second orbiter to ever uh, go to Jupiter. I mean, to the only spacecraft to ever have uh, orbited Jupiter. And even with just two vehicles that have orbited Jupiter. I feel like Jupiter is such a familiar and almost friendly place now. There's just so much data. There are so many really excellent photos. Um, and the bulk of that knowledge uh, came uh, from Juno. And Juno is still there and still uh, collecting data. Just, I, I think it's a fantastic mission. So, uh, spoiler alert, the big thing I wanted to talk about uh, this week has to do with a failure and I wasn't able to find jack shit <laughs> about <laughs> the failure. Um, I have a document title and a, and a number like an ID number, and I can't find this document. I don't think it was ever, uh, published. Uh, and I certainly don't think it was ever digitized. Um, I, I actually, I truly believe it, it wasn't published. Uh, I was able to find lists of, uh, documents that had been FOIA requested. And I 
didn't see this document on any of them. So I don't think uh, anybody has access to it other than somebody uh, who sits next to this particular file cabinet. And, you know, I, I got to say, I wish that we worked a little farther in advance of when we recorded because like maybe I could have foiled this thing uh, and gotten some better information, but that's okay. Uh, so instead, uh, let's talk about some of the big phases and we'll, we'll get to the failure that uh, fascinates me and uh, eludes me. So the way out uh, after the launch, right on the way out to Jupiter, it was actually spinning before it separated from the Centaur upper stage. It was launched on an Atlas V, by the way. And the Centaur spun up to uh, 1.4 RPM, separated from Juno, and then Juno wound up deploying at solar rays, which slowed down the spin. It lost uh, about a third of its angular momentum. And then I, I suppose it must have done additional spin-up maneuvers um, not before too long, uh, because it, its normal rotational period is two RPM, two rotations per minute, revolutions per minute. And it, it does that. It did that on, on the cruise out there. And it does that today while it's orbiting uh, Jupiter. It spins at two RPM. So that's like the initial separation. Uh, one other big event before it even heads out towards uh, Jupiter is it did one Earth flyby. It just got one gravity assist. And there's a really fantastic video. Juno is such a wonderful mission because there's so much uh, just really rich visual material uh, that's available. And it all comes down to the camera on board, which, you know, was not really supposed to be there. It was kind of something that um, uh, civilians, uh, citizens asked for, and it kind of got thrown on, right? Is that is that Juno Cam? Is that the one I'm thinking of? Yeah, yeah. They, they seriously considered yeah not flying mm -hmm. with that thing and they put it on there and it's <laughs> because i guess it's it, i guess it was initially more of a uh outreach thing almost and yeah. people would get the data and process it and but now they do science with it as well and so it was probably one of the best calls of like <laughs> uh, <laughs> totally. changing course on some uh instrument yeah. to include or not include. and and you know it, it's basically um i think it's an mer uh, descent camera that they slapped on there, um, mm. with some tweaked code, but, uh, they also added a, a filter. So it, it does RGB images, but it can also do methane, uh, imagery. So they, they tweaked it a little bit and they did additional work, um, to make it a good instrument, but like it almost wasn't an instrument at all. And it just, it worked out so well. And like you said, it's, it, it is actually a very valuable instrument these days. But anyway, you know, it kind of is wonderful that uh, Juno's history is so visually rich because of this camera. And one of those uh, very wonderful things that we get is a video as Juno is falling in towards the Earth on this gravity assist, a swing by. Um, and I'll have a GIF in the show notes because it, it really does make me happy. Um, once it got to Jupiter, it did a single insertion burn, uh, you know, way down at, at Perijove. And uh, the burn took 2,102 seconds. It's quite a long burn. And in those 2,000 uh, seconds, they achieved a delta V of uh, 542 meters per second. And while they were doing uh, that burn, they actually had the vehicle spinning at 5 RPM instead of 2 RPM. So they had a spin up and a spin down maneuver. And sorry, Ben, did they use... They use just uh, their propulsion system to spin up and yeah. spin down? Okay. Yeah, nothing interesting. 
so the uh, the insertion burn got them into a super super high orbit. In fact, the orbit is so high that Wikipedia lists the higher end of the orbit in scientific notation. Uh, I will do no such thing. Uh, so Ju- uh, so Juno entered into a four thousand two hundred kilometer by eight million one hundred thousand kilometer orbit. Uh, that's a period of 53 days. And the intention was to do a period reduction maneuver after an orbit or two uh, to drop the vehicle down into a 14-day period orbit that they called the science orbit. However, as they were approaching this period reduction maneuver, uh, they wound up calling it off sort of at the last second um, because they got data back from the vehicle when they were trying to pressurize the propulsion system. And they saw that some of their helium valves uh, were sticking. So there, there are specifically two helium valves uh, and they are uh, actuated valves. They have a servo that allows them to open and close, but they're also check valves. Fluid can move one way through them and not the other. And instead of these valves taking a few seconds to open, they took a few minutes to open. And like, that's what I spent so much time trying to track down. (laughs) Because um, Akatsuki also had this issue. A geostationary communication satellite had this issue. I believe it all has to do with the subsystems that come along with the engine they used, uh, which is a Leros 1B. And like, maybe it's because there's proprietary information. Maybe it's because it's, um, what's the... uh, uh, missile law in the U.S. Oh, ITAR? Uh, ITAR, yeah. <laughs> Maybe it's an ITAR thing. I couldn't find it. I was able to find um, the name of the document. It is, uh, it, it's an NESC report that I was looking for. But the document title is Juno Check Valve Anomaly Recovery Assessment. It has a serial number TI-1701202. <laughs> and <laughs> as far as I can tell, it's never been uh, published uh, or released publicly. Um, and so if anybody has access to it, that'd be great. And like I said, I kind of wish that we recorded a little earlier uh, ahead of schedule so that maybe I could have foia this darn thing. Because uh, I really want to know what they decided the issue was likely to have been, especially because it seems like it's the same issue that's happened with this vehicle uh, in the past. But they encountered this issue, and even though it was just the valves opening slower than expected, and even though it was the helium valves and not the propellant valves, um, they decided that they weren't going to do uh, this burn at all. First, they said, okay, well, we're going to delay by an orbit, give ourselves 52 days. And then they said, you know, we're not going to do um, an orbit lowering maneuver at all. And the reasoning is that this valve issue could have caused an engine misfire. And like, I'm not, I'm not a hundred percent sure what this was because they didn't tell us, <laughs> but mm-hmm. here's, here's what I'm thinking. Um, like worst case scenario, you could have the engine explode. That seems unlikely. What's more likely is that they wouldn't have been able to burn for the proper amount of time. Um, If the valves don't close, maybe closing your propellant valves isn't, you know, going to happen as quickly, or maybe you close the propellant valves and then you have fuel leak um, because you can't depressurize the system. And like, to be clear, they also did burns, uh, not not burns. I think they didn't ignite, but they did allow the propellant system to 
um, to bleed off the pressure um, that they had. Um, and they like specifically did a, an activity where they allowed the engine to bleed off. So I, I think that was the likely to be the issue. Um, perhaps they also were worried that they were not going to be able to burn for as long as they wanted to, but that seems unlikely, right? Like lowering your orbit at all doesn't seem like it's going to doom the mission if you don't get down to your target. Maybe it'll put you into an orbit that you don't love, but it doesn't seem like it's it's actually going to um, like end the mission. Well, in any event, the vehicle was or the, the mission was planned to be able to do 37 science orbits uh, before the end of the mission. And with this uh, much longer uh, orbital period, instead of 37 science orbits, they got 12, or at least they, they would have. Um, the mission has since been extended. Um, right now, it's extended out to September of 2025. And uh, my math says that they're going to get about 65 science orbits in that time. Uh, in total. And like one of the reasons that they can extend this mission is because um, the vehicle isn't going to degrade as quickly as they thought it would or as quickly as some other vehicles might have. So it won't degrade as quickly as they thought it would. Uh, and that's because it turns out that the radiation in the orbit that they're in is less extreme than they expected it to be. And like that's even with the fact that they discovered a new radiation belt around Jupiter. Uh, it's at a higher altitude than, than the known uh, radiation belts. It's like on the outside. To be clear, these, these radiation belts are stacked up like a sandwich, like a bagel sandwich. Um, and so like they found that there's an extra bagel on top of the bagel. But still, th there's uh, less harsh of an environment than they expected. But, you know, they planned for uh, survivability and radiation. And so this is, this is really cool. They have all their really expensive and delicate electronics in a box. And that box is made out of titanium. And that titanium is one centimeter thick. They have a one centimeter titanium shield uh, protecting um, their computers. And like, that's a heck of a lot of titanium. Uh, pretty cool. So, right, they're, they're going to be able to survive at least until 2025. And who knows, maybe they'll get extended out again. I, I suspect they won't be, but we'll see. So, like, the few things that I was able to find about this valve failure is the, the period reduction maneuver. It was planned for the 18th of October, 2016. And, uh, yeah, that was two orbits in. Um, and they actually, like, started working on the engine. Well, like, first off, they captured, right? 53 days times two <laughs> days ago they had captured and they had had no issues then. So they do two orbits and they're coming in for the, the bottom of the second orbit and um, they start doing all this work to prep. So they push the vehicle over to the correct attitude and they do that in like two steps. They start slow and then they go fast. Uh, they have to switch over to their low gain antenna. They um, spin up to their faster spin rate uh, for having the main engine turned on. Uh, they also like do a lot of stability work to make sure that they're not wobbling in this new attitude. Um, what's really cool is that the main engine actually has a cover, so they have to open that cover. We'll have photos in the show notes of the cover on Earth. And then I found a render that actually had the cover open 
um, which is pretty neat. The thing that you think is the cover actually is the cover, at least according to this uh, artist render. And so they had a, a week to figure out that um, these propellant valves uh, hadn't opened the way they expected and to decide that they were going to um, to postpone this burn. At six days, or at seven days prior, they opened the propellant valves. At six days prior, they pressurized the propulsion system. So I guess they had six days, not seven. And like, that's basically it. I know that there are two valves and that they got data that said they open in a few minutes instead of a few seconds. And like, I got nothing else. And uh, <laughs> that doesn't feel great, but what are you going to do? Um, so I, I looked a little bit into the engine. It's a Lyros 1B. Um, I can't tell you what company made it because the company has gone through so many hands that their name keeps changing. Uh, I'm not a hundred percent sure what the people on the mission would have referred to it as, uh, because it changed like right after launch. Um, but anyway, it was built in the UK in Westcott and it is pretty small. It's about one meter long. Uh, it's about half a meter wide in diameter at the base, uh, at, at the widest part. Um, it uses hydrazine and nitrogen tetroxide. Uh, it puts out 645 newtons worth of, worth of thrust, and it's got an ISP of 317 seconds. And it's got this really cool uh, shield that they uh, close to protect from micrometeoroids, and they open to purge the propellant system and to do their burns. And like, that's it. <laughs> so if anybody <laughs> can tell us more about what this failure was, I would really, really love to hear it. And, and Ben, I just want to point out, because this is kind of an incredible coincidence none of us knew about, but uh, not only is Perijove number 53 for Juno happening tomorrow, but tonight there's going to be an IO flyby, mm. which is awesome. So I guess in some number of days or weeks, we'll be able to get some Juno cam pictures <laughs> of IO up close and personal. Uh, mm. It's already done at least one flyby, but yeah, I love that. That's yeah, that's happening uh, 10 hours from now or something. Cool. All right. Well, thanks for that little uh, trip to Jupiter, Ben. And <laughs> I too am frustrated <laughs> by the fact that you can't figure out what caused those sticky check valves. Um, I really want to know the answer to that now. And Mm. Yeah, I show your frustration. So maybe someone listening can give us some information on that. But uh, anyway, next week, uh, the date range for next week's event is the 8th through the 14th of August. And Dennis, do you have a clue for us? I do. Next week in 1962, the Gemini before Gemini. All right. I assume that there's some significance there for the different pronunciations. <laughs> um, so if you have a guess as to what that clue is referencing, uh, you can email us at info at theorbitalmechanics.com or shoot us a toot on Mastodon and use the hashtag thisweeksf. And right now, we only check federated toots on bots in dot space and spacey dot space. But you can always mention at Orbital Podcast at bots in space or visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash discord to join our discord and type slash TWSF to give your guests to our Tombot. So those are all your methods. And good luck. Good luck, everybody. So moving on to upcoming spaceflight events. Four launches, one spacewalk. And what's the first launch, Dennis? First up, we have an Antares 230+. Plus. Uh, that will be taking Cygnus CRS-2 or NG-19. This will be taking... So this is the 19th flight of uh, Northrop's resupply spacecraft to the ISS. So obviously it's going to LEO. And uh, that launch uh, is Wednesday, August 2nd at 031 hours and 11 seconds. Uh, launching from Wallops Island, Virginia at launch area 0A. 
So East Coasters, keep an eye out. And a couple days after that, jumping ahead, uh, on August 4th uh, is when the uh, spacecraft will uh, rendezvous uh, with the ISS. And so coverage of that will begin on NASA TV, uh, again, Friday, August 4th at 4.30 a.m. Eastern. The capture itself is scheduled for 5.55 a.m. Eastern. And then the installation of the uh, NG-19 Cygnus spacecraft, which is going to be going to the Nader port of Unity, uh, will be at 7.30 a.m. Eastern. All right. After that, we have a Chinese launch. This is based on uh, NOTAMs, so we're not 100% sure what the payload is. It sounds like uh, they're pretty confident that this is a Long March 4C, uh, and it may be carrying a Fungian uh, 3F. Uh, this is the, the new polar orbiting uh, weather satellite constellation. And so the launch is expected to happen sometime between Thursday, August 3rd at 0341 hours UTC and 0412 hours UTC. And then after that, on the 3rd, we have a Falcon 9 Block 5, and that is launching Galaxy 37, which is a geostationary communication satellite manufactured and operated by Maxar. So this is going to geostationary transfer orbit, and it's launching from the Cape from Slick 40, and that will be at 0405 UTC through 0655 UTC, or 06, now that I think about it, whatever. <laughs> You think I know military time by now? I mean, I can read it. I just can't say it. Same it's 24-hour time, not military time. We can pronounce it however we want. And then uh, a few days after that, we have our final launch uh, of the coming week uh, on Monday, August 7th. And so this is a Soyuz 21B with a Frigate M upper stage. And this may be taking a GLONASS K2 uh, number 13, which is right, GNSS satellite. GLONASS is you know Russia's... GPS, and uh, therefore it's going to MEO, as those type of satellites tend to do. Um, but there is a note uh, for coming from Launch Library that the payload identity is unconfirmed. Uh, so uh, take that as you will. So again, that's Monday, August 7th, with a window from 1200 to 1500 UTC. Thank you for picking rounded hours after we've been struggling all <laughs> uh, this entire segment. What's worse is those <laughs> rounded hours come from the warnings that they've issued for the, the impact zone for the first right. stage. So like, it's not even really a window. It's just like, Hey, there could be, you know, rockets falling out of the sky between these hours. Heads up. Jeez. Yeah. But this one will be launching out of Plisetsk at pad 43.4. All right. Finally, uh, we have a Russian spacewalk. Um, and Dennis, you were able to track down that the last EVA that we talked about last week was EVA 59. So I think you are right in assuming that this is EVA 60, um, which would be working on the SHK airlock. It's the, it's the experiment airlock on Nauka. And so this spacewalk is going to feature uh, Sergei Propolev and Dmitry Patelin. And this spacewalk uh, is scheduled uh, to begin at 1045 a.m. Eastern time. It's going to last for six hours 
uh, six and a half hours. Um, and the coverage is going to start on NASA TV at 10.15 a.m. Eastern Time on Wednesday, August 9th. And that is your final upcoming space flight event. All right. And with that final event, let's do it with the show. And we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to Colin, Jordan, Mike, Citronaut, Delta V, Dang Massa Memes, The Greek, Chris S., and Alex for joining our recording session today and helping us make correction burns on the fly. And if you want to support the show, please tell a friend or better yet, leave us a review wherever you listen, or you can visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign and affiliate links. Get in touch. Find links to our mailing list, Discord server, and Mastodon account at theorbitalmechanics.com slash about. Or you can skip all of that by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. All right, so that's it. We will see you all next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody. See you.